0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from ACAST. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.
2: Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control... I discovered creative control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting. And I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in, or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So Go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To
0: make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today.
1: Bob Mayer, Jason Jones, and Ed Stasium are American people who worked together on a remarkable reissue of the classic album Tim by the legendary rock and roll band The Replacements. Initially active between 1979 and 1991, with sustained reunion touring activity occurring between 2013 and 2015, The Replacements have been subject to fascinating and painstaking retrospective assessments, including Bob Mayer's wonderful 2016 book Trouble Boys, The True Story of The Replacements, some recently released archival live performances, and some wondrous expanded album box sets via Rhino Records, including Dead Man's Pop, which won a 2021 Grammy Award for Mayer's Liner Notes. On September 22nd, 2023, Rhino releases the 4-CD, 1-LP deluxe set Tim, Let It Bleed Edition, which, through a painstakingly detailed process, revisits and reimagines the Replacements' 1985 album, Tim. And to celebrate this remarkable achievement, I had a great talk with the aforementioned authority on Replacements lore, Bob Mayer, one of the band's biggest fans and champions at Rhino, Jason Jones, and the legendary recording engineer who rebuilt *Tim* songs and outtakes using the original session tapes, Ed Stasium. There's a lot to listen to and think about with this Let It Bleed edition of Tim, so please enjoy this deep dive into how it all came together. A part of the Entertainment One network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. That's the primary source of revenue for all the work that I put into this podcast So please, if you can, visit my Patreon and support this show and my work today. Thank you. With additional support from Blackbird Music, a wonderful record store with bricks and mortar locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and very friendly personnel who will happily help you look for whatever it is you need in the store or online. If you go to blackbird.ca and you're looking to order something, just go to their website and you can order it and they'll ship it right to your house. Say you want to order yourself a copy of the Let It Bleed edition of Tim. Again, go to blackbird.ca, type in Tim Let It Bleed edition or the replacements or whatever, what have you. You know what to type. And sure enough, if they've got it, they'll ship it right to your house. Just that simple. So thanks again to Blackbird Music. Plus in-kind support from the likes of Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario. And Grandad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 803 of Creative Control featuring the lovely and talented Bob Mayer, Jason Jones, and Ed Stasium discussing the replacements with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey Bob. How's it going? Great, Vish. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to see you again. Thanks for being back on the show. Where in the world are you today? Uh, I am actually in Memphis, Tennessee at
3: the moment, and uh, looking forward to uh, talking with you about another Replacements box set project. <laughs>
1: You said that as if we maybe have done too many of these. Are you okay? No, you no. To- <laughs> it's always, it's a, it's a perennial event, uh, getting to speak with you about one of these, and always a joy. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you coming back. It does mean the world to me, and it's nice to see you. Also rejoining us, I suppose, Jason, are you there?
4: Yes, I'm here, Vish. How are you, my man?
1: I'm very well. It's nice to see you. How are you feeling and doing today? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. Um, it was my birthday yesterday, Happy and um, oh, thank you. Um, and it was a birthday I'll never forget. Uh, I was in I was in the emergency room, and now I'm here and feeling great and uh, excited to talk to you again about another glorious replacements box set. The show so, The show must go on, Jason. The show must trooper. go on, man.
1: Well, listen, I don't want to dwell too much on it because it's nobody's business. But uh thank you for uh, joining us again uh, after a night in the emergency room. And also, happy birthday. Come on. That's amazing. You had a <laughs> thank you. birthday at the hospital. Much. That's where, if you think about it, that was your first birthday. Oh, yeah, po- that's probably, right. You were back in well, the hospital. And
4: it's very replacements-esque, you know, take me down yeah. to the hospital. <laughs> exactly.
1: There you, go. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's lovely to see you. And uh, joining us uh, for the first time uh, on the show, uh, Ed, are you there? Hello, Vish.
5: Greetings from fabulous Poway, California.
1: Oh, lovely. I don't know that uh, – where, whereabouts in California is, uh, is North that?
5: Cal- North County, San Diego.
1: Oh, lovely. Hey, you guys had that thing come by, that storm. Everything okay? Didn't do shit. It didn't do anything, right? That's
5: didn't what they do said. anything. No. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, there's been days down here where there's like five inches of rain and the, the street floods and I can't get out because uh, I live on a hill and at the bottom it's just a creek and it gets up about two feet deep, but um, nothing happened here. I mean, it was okay. like an, an inch and a quarter. No wind, no damage, nothing at all. It, it bypassed us. Well, good. Yeah, did, that's it, great. It, it did, uh, you know, down in other areas of the county, it did uh, some damage, but not here, unfortunately.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing to hear, uh, Ed. It's a real honor to get to speak with you. Thanks for making time and being on the show. I really, uh, I, I sincerely mean that. Thank you. Thank you,
5: Vish. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you.
1: No, oh, it's, that's great. All right. Well, we're going to get into this thing. Uh, and again, uh, Bob and Jason in particular, I say congrats again on another wonderful set. Uh, Let's begin with Jason uh, because he's ailing and I want to make him work hard right away.
4: (laughs) Okay, go for it. In terms
1: of the assembly of this one, it seems to me that you had a lot of exciting material to choose from in terms of songs, photos, images, stories to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. How did making uh, this Tim set compare to the other ones that you and Rhino have put together and we've discussed.
4: <laughs> well, this one, well, this one was a bit of, well, I think the last time that we spoke, maybe it was the first time that we spoke about the please to meet me box. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. One of the things that I had mentioned whenever you posed the question of what's <laughs> going to happen in the future, uh, was I mentioned that Shirley would love to remix Tim. Yeah. And Bob and I had talked about it for a while, and we already had the idea in mind to potentially approach Mr. Stasium about doing said remix. However, the thing that kind of was a potential roadblock for us was what bonus material we could use, because we had already used the only professionally recorded live show that we had on hand as a part of the Maxwell's release. And also the outtakes of that material seemed on the face of it to maybe not be there. So it took a bit more digging and discovery in order to really kind of shape everything. You know, the discovery of the full Alex Chilton recording sessions really was a revelatory moment. And truly digging into the multitrack recordings from the Tim Sessions yielded a lot of fruit. Yeah, so there was a lot more there than initially met the eye in the ear. Hmm. And there was a <laughs> there was a brief moment when the Warner Brothers, uh, sorry, the Warner Music Group vault team said, oh, we've got some budget to do some tape transfers oh. or at no cost. And I'm like, well, here's all of these reels of Tim that I would like transferred for free. And it was mountains and mountains of tape. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, well, you guys said that it was going to be free. So please like, (laughs) go ahead and transfer it. And having the ability to have that stuff and live with it for a moment and not be on the hook for a forthcoming project, which was one of the reasons why we we took a break yeah between after sorry mom because Bob and I really did want to have a real deep, like clear path of what we wanted to do with the catalog. Since we had already done three extraordinary box sets, we knew that those were the ones that were not the easiest, but the ones where we had the most malleable stuff right in our hands. So the next ones would take a bit more You know, digging and scratching in order to, uh, in order for them to take shape. So, um, living with the Tim material and being able to have the kind of discussions and, you know, doing the proper research into the approach and into the additional songs that were recorded, but not used. It all started to kind of take shape, you know, because we have set a pretty high bar.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I, I can't recall, Jason, were you involved in, in any way with the, uh, I want to say it was the 2008 reissues. I might have that year wrong. No, no,
4: those were, those were primarily Peter Jasperson.
1: Right. So yeah. those things and Tim in particular really spoke to me because the Tim reissue that I have on compact disc has all these outtakes, a chunk yes. of them, which are on this thing too. So mm-hmm. I would have thought someone on the vault team would be like, Remember 2008? We have way more stuff that we didn't even put on that CD. <laughs> Did anyone? Because that was someone called something for that reissue, obviously, right? Um, yes,
4: but uh, but some of that stuff was primarily two-track stereo, right? Mixed stuff. So the actual ability to go and dig into the actual multi-tracks themselves was something that I would say the company at the time financially were not interested in doing Okay. so the fact that we have had a good track run of successful box sets means that there's larger budgets attached to the projects which means that we can do the proper arch- archival work that we need to do yeah. in order to make great defining box sets
1: it's nice to hear that uh, Warner Music Group seems to have come into some money <laughs> that's great. What did they An ant die and leave them an inheritance? No, that, I'm just kidding. That's great. Yeah. That's great that they're yeah. investing in these because they're amazing. All right, I appreciate that background, and uh, I wanted clarity on that because I love the 2008 disc. I, I just the, it was, two,
4: the yeah. 2008 one is great, you know. Yeah. And to me, like the key, the key to all of it is the Tim version of "Can't Hardly Wait" that's on the "All for Nothing, Nothing for All." Yeah, double disc set from 97 yeah like that just as a fan who bought that two cd set back in the day like i was like man 10 could sound amazing
1: yeah (laughs) there's what are there there five can't hardly waits on this one or something something like that they're all unbelievable i love it i i love it so much
4: there's well uh, bob correct me if i'm wrong there's four on PC but I think plus a plus the live. I think yeah,
1: Yeah, Yeah, I was right. Let's just clarify. I was correct. I wasn't exactly <laughs> no. technicality. All right. No, I appreciate that background, uh, uh, Jason. Now, now having said that, and I, I don't mean to jump ahead into future planning. So this feels like it must be everything that was captured uh, for Tim and and for those sessions. But knowing you two, you and Bob, is it is it really everything? Is this everything? Well,
4: it's everything. <laughs> it's everything that was commercially releasable okay really i would say yeah there's there's that version of i want to destroy you which we the roadie the roadie which the roadie sings right. which which are like oh, not about that and we thought about we talked about it briefly bob and i about it, maybe using it as an instrumental version but it just it's just not there okay you know, and Bob, is there anything else that we left out?
3: Uh, there was from the Chilton sessions. There was a kind of halfway version of Heart of Stone and a blues jam, but, and Ed kind of took a pass at trying to see if they were salvageable, but there's nope. nothing, you know, <laughs> not everything you would want <laughs> and more is on this, uh, is on this set. And, you know, we try and, we try and maintain a high level of quality while at the same time, also give a kind of sneak peek into the creative process. I mean, there's alternate takes on this set where you hear the song kind of evolving and, You know, those things I think if it it has to kind of cross a pretty high bar for us to include it where it's either sounds great, has historical value or provide some kind of insight into the creative process as the band was formulating, you know, some of these iconic songs and, you know, basically everything has to tick off one or all of those boxes. And so that's kind of the standard that we sort of try and hold it to without getting too much into the, you know, being able to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, before we get to Ed, who is a central uh, figure in this set, obviously, and I can't wait to talk to Ed about uh, some of the choices he's made here, because, I mean, just a spoiler alert, it's like a brand new record for me, having listened to it for so many years. Uh, It's unbelievable. So I can't wait to talk to Ed. But Bob, just for people listening... I want to ask you about the story of Tim, um, sure. the context that brought this album into being. It was just briefly, I'll do what I can to contextualize it a bit more. It was their major label debut. It was a transitional time for the band and its membership. Uh, their manager and champion, Peter Jesperson, was sort of marginalized, or maybe maybe sort of is putting it uh, gently. uh Tommy yeah. Ramone was brought into the fold. This record has a really compelling story, And once again, it's captured beautifully in the liner notes here. You're an award-winning and best-selling storyteller, Bob, so I want to go to you on this. Uh, Again, for those who might need some background, can you give us a brief overview of maybe where the replacements were at as a band um, when they began working on Tim?
3: Sure, uh, basically coming out of 1984, which was a big year for them uh, They'd put out the, their fourth Record on their hometown indie, Twin Tone Let It Be, which obviously would become a Classic, uh, they were already Getting sort of some nibbles from major Labels, uh, Warner Brothers in particular A junior a and man, Michael Hill, who had been a Friend of theirs, had been attempting to sort of Sign them, uh, but not making much Headway with his bosses at Warner Brothers Let It Be comes out in the fall of 84 The band starts touring, generating Great reviews, obviously based you know on the on the kind of strength of Let It Be. That, that December, they're the subject of a Village Voice cover story by RJ Smith as they roll into New York City for a couple performances. One, uh, at CBGB's where they're billed as Gary and the Boners and which turns into a label showcase essentially of all the, you know, major labels in New York coming out to see them, which in predictable fashion they sort of turn into a covers <laughs> drunken covers set and scare off most of the scare off most of the label suitors and then they have another gig a few days later uh at Irving Plaza which by all accounts is one of the best shows they ever played and uh, one of the people who saw them that night was Seymour Stein the head of Sire Records which was a part of the Warner Brothers sort of uh, uh company larger company and Seymour falls in love with them Decides he wants to sign them, sort of teams up with Michael Hill, who he brings in as his A&R man on it. And they basically begin the the process of negotiating a deal, which takes a few more months. On that same trip, the replacements run in to open the show, have Alex Chilton open the show at CBGB's. They connect with Alex. So that's kind of that weekend or that week (laughs) in New York sort of begat uh, what would become Tim. January, Alex comes in and records some demos with the band, uh, essentially kind of some new songs that Westerberg had uh, from the road and uh, the great stuff, obviously, uh, including Nowhere Is My Home, early versions of Can't Hardly Wait, and then sort of as the deal is negotiated and they finalize it, the search for a kind of producer begins. 1985, it's sort of hard to know who should produce the replacements. It's not the era of the alternative producer yet. It's still, you've got your 70s kind of guys or your real indie producers, the Mitch Easters of the world, and so that was always going to be a struggle with the replacements, and I think also for the replacements, they'd never worked with an outsider or their first four albums has it all been done with some combination of Peter Jesperson, the engineer, Steve Felstead and Westerberg and or the band, you know, kind of producing or credited as producers. So, they, you know, it was, it was a new era for them to kind of figure out what that role was. And so there was some talk, you know, Chilton didn't, wasn't a real viable candidate. And then there was some talk of, you know, a few other people, uh, even Robin Hitchcock, who who they were a fan of, but really pretty quickly because of the association with Sire and the Ramones who were on Sire, uh, it was settled that Tommy Ramone should uh, produce the record. But in fact, uh, at that time, Tommy had just come off of doing uh, Too Tough to Die for the Ramones, a big comeback record, which reunited Tommy with the Ramones and Tommy with Ed Stasium. So initially there was a lot of talk that Tommy and Ed would produce what would become the uh, band's major label debut, the replacement's major label debut, and it ended up. I think out of a kind of abundance of caution given the sort of combustible nature of the replacements, let's keep them at home, yeah. have them record in Minneapolis, have them work with at least an engineer they were familiar with, not have all outsiders come in. And so they settled on a combination of Tommy Ramone producing Steve Felstead engineering. And Steve is a fantastic engineer and I think Tommy uh, made a great record. I think there was a little push and pull with the band in in the process of mixing the record. And I don't think, anybody was quite sort of happy with the finished result but it was a baby band on a major label it wasn't a huge budget yeah. let's put this out there and see what happens here 30 some odd years later we have the opportunity to kind of revisit that material and bring Ed finally Ed Stasium into the into the mix literally and figuratively uh, to to kind of give us a new version of Tim
1: well first of all Bob that was an astounding summary <laughs> and for those who can't see us right now which <laughs> ideally is nobody except us for and probably some <laughs> Zoom executive who's bored. I just want to say that was astounding. And Bob was not reading anything. Bob, you just have this at the ready. Like if someone pulls up to you at a bar and says, "Hey, tell me about the replacements," you can just go like that, like a like just like a machine. I will bore them for hours. <laughs> I will bore them into a coma,
3: <laughs> into a coma. I'll put them in. A-
1: wow, well, no, it's just it's amazing. I hope everyone listening uh, feels like they're fully informed. Unbelievable. Thank you, Bob. Uh, more on uh, some of that stuff in a bit. Let's go to Ed. Uh, Ed, you also, not to sell your, you short, you wrote a great essay uh, in these liner notes as well, explaining your role in, like I said, I think making Tim kind of sound like a brand new record to me. Um, and as Bob just alludes to, you have this sort of near-miss history with the original sessions. Can you talk about what you were kind of up to uh, when the original sessions for Tim were being planned And then now you've like, like Bob says, this magical, weird cycle of events. You're, you're, you're back. You're back. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what was going on when, when the band was working with Tommy. And then also like your approach to these, these sessions now that you, you were given the opportunity to revisit them. Can you speak to those things? Oh,
5: geez. Sure. I can do that. Um, and Bob (laughs) helped with my essay, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, 80, I don't remember what, boy. Uh, I, like um, Bob mentioned, I just finished Too Tough to Die with Tommy. Yeah. And I guess I was, I based myself back in New York. Um, I was in LA from um, March of 81 until March of 84. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I was brought in, I, I came back to do a, a Peter Wolf solo record up in Boston at the car studio. And then uh, we mixed it in New York and I was living in LA and everybody's like, Ed, what the hell are you doing in LA? You got to come back to New York. Come on, come on back. So I moved back to New York and oh. um, just started working out of right track doing, uh, what was I doing? Uh, back then I did a band called face to face, not, not the, it was the, um, uh, Boston band face to face. And then I did some work uh, going out to England with Julian Cope and, um, Jeez, I didn't. I can't even think of what I was doing. I, my, my it
3: was a busy period for you, though. It, it I think super, right? you were saying it
5: was, it yeah. was super yeah. busy. Super busy. It was nonstop. Yeah. yeah, it's always hard for me to recollect everything. Sort of jams together. And no, uh,
1: the re- the reason I ask, and I think Bob just alluded to it. I think part of the context of you not working on it in the end was you were swamped. You were pretty busy. Is that right?
5: Um, uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> but but, I, I, right. but I, I didn't hear a, a peep about me being involved at the time.
3: Oh, no. yeah, okay. I think yeah, I think what happened is when I talked to Michael Hill, who was the band's A&R guy, you know, I think originally the idea was, you know, Tommy and Ed were really kind of a team historically, yeah. having worked on the early Ramones record and then done that uh, kind of Ramones comeback record with Too Tough to Die, you know, and immediately preceding the, the Replacements record. And, and again, I think it was, which is funny knowing Ed now, I think there was some thought of, boy, the replacements and a professional engineer because Ed is such a, you know, kind of feel guy and seat-to-the-pants approach and really kind of makes great raw rock and roll records. But I think there was just an idea of like, and that had more to do with the replacements of uh, we don't want somebody who's going to put the replacements through their paces or whatever and, and spook them you know because they're such a delicate sort of cre- creature but um I think unfortunately it would have been a great combination but yeah so I there was talk internally you know particularly on the ANR side of let's get Ed and Tommy and then it was like well then they'll ban we'll want you know should they, we bring him to New York should we leave them in Minneapolis and it ended up kind of being one of those situations where I was like well we'll split the difference here and have Tommy
1: go to Minneapolis and work yeah. with Yeah. yeah thanks again Bob for Having all the facts, it's amazing. Uh, he that you does. Know all this he stuff. does
5: have all the facts, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, 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 I read in your, I believe it's your essay or the one you wrote with Bob, uh, Ed, that uh, uh, you worked so well with Tommy that uh, Tommy's brother was supposed to manage you as a production team at one that, point. That, 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 that
5: did, yeah. I, I even, yeah. Remember, I came across a contract that he had drawn up, but it, it never, it never came to fruition. Oh, I see. Um, hmm. Yeah, it just so didn't you, happen. But there was, talk, there was definitely talk about it. Yeah, so what happened though?
1: For those of us who uh, love the Ramones, uh, can you give us a little sense of what it was like to work with Tommy? I mean, obviously, you didn't work on this record with him, but just generally, what was it like working with him?
5: We got along great. Um, You know, I I was brought in, uh, Tony Bon Jovi brought me in to leave home. I was living in Canada. I came back. The first thing I did was the Ramones leave home in November of uh, uh, 76, right? Yeah, 76. And uh, we just got on well. It was We came from the same type of background. I've mentioned this before. Uh, you know, Tommy was had an engineering background. He worked at Record Plant, worked on some Hendrix records with Bon Jovi. That's how we knew Tony. Yeah. And he was an assistant over there. So Tommy was, you know, a player. He played guitar, played drums. And so did I. I played all the band instruments. And I was always the guy in the band who would figure out the song. And, you know, I'm talking like high school and stuff. You know, going back that far, I would get a record, listen to the record, and figure out the chord changes, write down the lyrics. And that was the beginning of my production career. Little did I know, though I did not know what I was doing. So Tommy was basically doing the same thing. He was into making records. I was into making records. He loved recording. So did I. And we just got on immediately. And we Mm -hmm. were the team. Uh, Honestly, you know, Tony Bon Jovi wasn't around much for any of those Ramones recordings. Yeah. He was off trying to make deals for stuff and Tommy and I made those records and we, we had a great time. What a great a great college it was. Yeah. It was my college education. Um, you know diving into it. Um, it was great you know coming back. I was actually living in New Jersey for most of that time and then commuting into New York to do those records. And then you know, we started power Station yeah. with Tony uh, and uh, you know went to rocket to Russia. Uh, we cut the stuff at uh, Media Sound. And it was always very quickly done. I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, leave home. We cut the backing tracks like in three days. Yeah. And then Johnny double-tracked his guitar. It was an experiment, but we liked it. And uh, I mean, he double-tracked his guitar on the time it takes to get from Queens to Manhattan on the subway. Seriously. He was <laughs> <You> just <laughs> one after the other. Bam, bam, bam. Next song. Okay. you know, Commando. Okay. You know, God, boom. Boom. It was uh, great, and Tommy and I were buddies. We talked all the time, and we were a team. He was—he was more of an intellectual with his concept with the Ramones, and yeah. you know, I was—you uh, know—I had my ideas as well. I, I also started playing guitar and doing all the backing vocals on the records that I did. Yeah. So we went on, and then uh, my, the first production that Tommy and I co-produced. We did, we did Leave Home, the Rocket to Russia, then we did It's Alive, mm-hmm. um, uh, on New Year's Eve 77 to 78. Yeah. And that was the first co-production. And then in, um, summer of, of 78, we, uh, teamed up to do Road to Ruin at Media Sound and spent, uh, you know, maybe six weeks on it. It was great.
1: Well, for what it's worth, I've told Jason and Bob uh, the story before, I think about my son and I bonding over Tim. In particular, by the replacements, they may forget it because they got so much going on. So I'll re- briefly retell the story. But I want to say, Ed, my daughter Ramona is named after the Ramones. Uh That's how sweet, much they. Sweet
5: little Ramona. That's right.
1: That's how much they mean to, to me and my family. And what had happened was, my son was, uh, I don't know, two, three years old, and was in the car seat one day, and I had left my copy of Tim in the CD player, and it turned on the car, and it blasted out, and I was like, uh oh. Yeah, get this out of here and put Raffy back in, and then my son was like, "Wait, what? What is that?" And then I yeah. I put it back in, and so we he loved it. By the end of a few, within weeks, he knew the words to every song. Some of them he probably shouldn't wow. probably shouldn't have known all the words. That mm-hmm. also kickstarted a Ramones thing, and he became he just I was like, "Oh, I can play the music I like. I don't just have to play Raffy and Fred Penner." Anyway, then my son <laughs> the first five Ramones albums he would be like, I know what the next song is. And he would go through the sequencing, and he was singing along to, again, 53rd and 3rd. I should have skipped. But my point is, <laughs> he loved it. He loved it so much. And uh, So anyway, I have this like uh, parental bond with the Ramones and replacements. Sorry to bore you guys. I just want to say... It's amazing. I, th-
5: I think it's great. Fantastic. Yeah. What a great
1: story. It's really meaningful. So I asked about you and Tommy for a particular reason. There is a mythology around Tim and how how Tommy captured it and how he mixed it. And and that is a big part of the story of this set is you going back to those sessions and trying to figure out what happened, I guess. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you had to deal with, so to speak, what you discovered in taking on this project about what that the stories about Tommy and the recording of this record actually meant, what, what, what was true and what was false? Can you speak to that? Certainly. Well, first
5: of all, uh, thank you, um, Bob and Jason, for bringing me on to the project. They uh, contacted me. I guess it was almost a year ago. I think it was in September of 20- yeah,
3: yeah, August or September.
5: Oh, yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. And they sent me a multiple page, <laughs> uh, a multiple page uh, a, a, a dossier yes. about what, we're, what we'd like to do with the record. And talking about the sessions, talking about the multi tracks, what's on there. I mean, these guys studied those multi tracks. They knew every track that was on there. Hmm. And I had to do um, my job. Basically, was to do a bit of um, you know audio forensics, um, especially with the vocals, and especially with um, you know Bob Stinson's guitar, um, which you know he came only came in for a couple of days apparently, and just threw down some tracks a lot of which was not used on the original mixes. Or if it was used, it was buried in that wash that the mix turned out to be, which a lot of people love, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, for instance, we wanted to have all the original vocals that Paul did. And on several songs, maybe half of the songs, there were several tracks that were done of Paul's vocal. Maybe two, three tracks... I think one song had four tracks of, uh, you know, four takes. And when I, I'd have to A-B them, I'd have to time stretch them because we're working on tape, don't forget. So I had the production master and the multi tracks really didn't match up. So I had to stretch the, uh, you know, using Pro Tools, I had to stretch so they matched up. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a complicated process. I had to actually hire somebody to do that on a couple of the tracks. I see. Because they kept moving. And uh, I would match them up, and then I'd have to listen. I put Paul's vocal on the right-hand side, put the band, the original production mix on the left side, and I would listen in, in stereo to both of them with no track, just Paul's vocal on the right. And I would find out which vocals matched. They comped those vocals. Okay, they would yeah. use different different sections of the vocal, and like a word here, a phrase here, a chorus here. And I had to figure out which vocals they used. Mm. And because they didn't comp it, usually in comping, and I had even done that with uh, going way back with comping, even on Too Tough to Die, I remember comping Joey's vocals. And we'd always bounce them to one track. Now, say there's three tracks of uh, a vocal, you'd bounce that to one track and then we'd have that track but with this they used a computer an early form of computer yeah. i don't know what i don't know what method it was but they switched it with the computer they muted it and brought it in so i had to figure all of that out yeah. and it, the same.
3: the Vish, what the truth is ed had to do a lot of work basically had to sort of relive the sessions yeah. in every moment of tape and go back and sort of initially put it all back To where what what was on the master and then figure out, well, what can we add to this and what what else can we kind of go through? But, you know, this wasn't a thing where it's sort of just like we gave Ed prepared materials and said, hey, you know, you just kind of mix it like you're playing a game. It's like he really had to go through every inch of tape. And 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 rebuild the record as it was originally, and then sort of go back and see what else he could do. So it was a pretty Herculean effort on his part. Again, partially because of the technology they were using, sort of in the mid '80s. This is all pre-Pro Tools, and but they were using a kind of early computer, which sort of made everything that much harder. And so Ed really had to, uh, you know, like I say, live this record and and every sort of inch of tape all over again.
1: Mm, this is true. I really appreciate that insight, and I can appreciate the work that would have gone in, uh, given the different eras and technology. I'm curious uh, about this dossier and and getting some more background on it. Uh, I like calling it a dossier. I feel like we're in a James Bond movie or something. Jason, given the infamy around the sound of Tim, I assume uh, you and Bob in particular and anyone else involved might have had particular ideas about what could be done to kind of revitalize this album. Can you give us some background about what you uh, handed over to Uh, to add in terms of um, some suggestions, directions, I suppose?
4: Well, I think some of the original intention within the original mix, we didn't want to be lost. Yeah. You know, and there are certain flourishes within songs that we didn't want to be lost. However, in listening to the original multitracks, the thing that really popped out to both Bob and I is the fact that there was lots more Bob Stinson than met the ear. And we wanted that to be heard.
1: Yeah.
4: Because he made a lot of very thoughtful and interesting choices with his guitar work that really needed to be heard. And also, we wanted Tommy Stinson to be heard. Yes.
1: (laughs) For the first (laughs) time. The low end, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: You know, it's, and, you know, we just wanted it to sound like really full. Yeah. So i to sound full. Yeah, we kind of want we wanted we wanted the dead man's pop approach to Tim.
3: Right. I think what 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 sort of j- uh, really accelerated the thought process of m- remixing Tim and you know way back when when uh, you know even before Rhino was involved, I had kind of met with the band and drawn up a list of sort of dream projects. You know, most of which we executed. This was way down the list because I thought this was so far fetched and didn't really know if you know the 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 sounds on tape would be there. Part of the myth and the legend of this record that you talk about is. You know, over the years, the band has said, oh, Paul said, oh, my amp was broken or, you know, they didn't record this or that. None of that turned out to be true. It it turned out actually the band, again, Tommy Ramone produced a fantastic record, Steve uh, Fels that engineered a wonderful record, and the band performed and played the hell out of this record. And somewhere in the mix, you know, some of that stuff maybe got diluted. So we weren't sure until we really went into the Maltese originally it'd be like, first of all, is there something here we can work with and give to Ed to to, to sort of work his magic? Turned out there was, and I think just fundamentally, what what, what we sort of tried to convey via the dossier and the dossier and uh, was was what the <laughs> band had sort of always wanted was you know for it to sound much more like they did at the time. Um, you know to one, to have some power in the rhythm section to really be able to hear the bass and the drums uh, as you would have heard the band playing in the studio or on stage, you know, because I think at this point uh, Tommy Stinson and Chris Mars, the drummer, had really locked in and, and they were a fantastic sounding rhythm section. Um, there was also obviously Bob's uh, guitar parts, uh, which again, because they came in sort of after the fact, you know, the basic tracks are cut as a trio, which is the first time that happened. And Bob came in and threw everything on over the course of a day. And then Tommy really was had the, uh, the kind of onerous duty of editing that out um, and kind of picking and choosing. And I think anybody in that position would tend to sort of Play it safe and say, okay. Well, this feels like too much. So I think he he had really good discretion in editing some things out, but then kind of maybe a little bit threw the baby out with the bathwater because we found and Ed found some wonderful stuff that really did fit. But I think at, at that moment in time, it probably made a lot of sense to him yeah. uh, to, to to make the choices he made. And then the third thing was there was just some kind of elements of the uh, era production wise and aesthetically in terms of the drum sound, uh, the the digital reverb or the reverb sound on Paul's vocal, which again um, were stylistic choices. I think, Tommy made, but you know it didn't maybe serve the 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 band and who and what they were. So I think there's you know again we're with all these things. It's less a question of trying to um, create a new history or even be revisionist, but actually to go back to sort of what was closest to what was happening in the studio and what the band was sounding like at the time.
1: Again, I appreciate that. You know, it's it's interesting as you're speaking and hearing Ed talk about what was actually on the tracks and you talking about it, Bob. Like this is a notoriously self-deprecating band. Um, and a self-sabotaging band. So the record comes out, you know, commercially it's not a huge success, and then the rumbling I I, I wasn't I was a kid when this was going on, so I'm just going to speculate. This band had a tendency to be like, that thing we made, it sucks. We suck. We're, we're a bunch <laughs> of losers. We don't know what we're doing. Then you get the actual... And, and so I'm guessing for you, uh Bob and Jason, you've heard this band mythology about what went wrong with this record. Then you get access to the multitracks. What is it like, sensationally, Jason, to hear it and be like, what the hell is Paul talking about? His amp wasn't busted. It sounds great. Like, <laughs> right. What was that sensation like to be like, oh, this is actually... Fine, we can work it's great. Can you can you describe that feeling viscerally what it was like? I
4: mean it's like Christmas morning.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: it is. I mean I mean the, yeah. the fear that Bob and I had was that well, the reverb was baked into the multi. Right. So that it it would kind of cancel out any hopes of doing a remix. But the fact that everything was actually well recorded meant that this project had hope. Yeah. So it was it was amazing. Like I I spent I spent many many days just kind of outlining different mixes with various guitar parts to just kind of outline to Bob like okay, here's what's possible with this, here's what's possible with this, like and that kind of informed somewhat somewhat informed kind of the di- the the uh, infamous dossier yeah. uh, that we keep uh, alluding to, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it was it was it was like Christmas morning. It was yeah. amazing, and I should
3: and I should add, you know, the, the the thought in the back of my mind the whole time was Ed. You know, we have to get Ed to do this, yeah. and that was really the only person. You know, it was uh, you know when we did the remix on "Don't Tell a Soul" with Dead Man's Pop, that was very easy to connect that because the whole idea was let's get. Matt Wallace, who produced the album to finally get a chance to mix it properly with this one. Obviously, with, with Tommy passing in, in 2014, you know, obviously we would have loved to have had team Tommy and Ed to, to do yeah. the remix, but unfortunately Tommy passed those years ago. So it's like, we have to get Ed yeah. or, you know, I had, I had some, you know, obviously just in the, in the role of producers, like I had some fallback ideas, but really Ed was the only person the band wanted. Ed was the only person we wanted. And fortunately, you know, the fact that he was available and willing to do it. And again, it's not the, you know, it's, it, it could, could be. Viewed by some, you know, as a thankless tax, particularly the the amount of work that I'd had to do, you know, uh, given the technical constraints of this of this material and how it was recorded. But, um, you know, we were very fortunate that basically the 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 dream was was fulfilled and the kind of alternate uh, reality of, of this record, you know, we were able to do because that was, you know not only willing to do it but really willing to dig in and and get in uh, into the into the weeds of the, of this record and and really like i say relive the experience uh, that you know he just happened to miss the first time but he he got the full experience having to go through all this tape
5: i did and i enjoyed every minute of it i was i was dedicated to, i still am dedicated to this record you know getting all the stuff out there and finding all the it was enjoyable yeah. it was enjoyable going through it and and pulling you know and the sounds were like it, it was recorded well. Yeah. I mean, in the dossier, a lot of the gear that they're using was reported to have been pretty old and not great. Paul claimed, and that one, one of the speakers in the amp was mic not mic properly, yeah. and blown at the time. But when I got the multi tracks, you know, the recording is great. Sounds great. Sounds fantastic. Uh, you know, the drums are recorded well. The guitars are recorded well. The vocals sound fabulous. So that end of it was all there already, and it was just digging in and getting, finding the right parts, especially from uh, Bob's guitar playing, and finding those, you know, f- doing the same thing that I did, I'm sorry, did I say Paul or Bob? Bob, Bob Stinson's yeah, yeah. Bob Stinson's guitar, yeah. and I did the same thing that I did with Paul's vocal, you know, matched up what did he use, and what's this other track, and there was, there was tracks I didn't use at all, and there's some great stuff on it.
1: yeah. I want to ask about those tracks. I just want to say uh, that I couched that last question in terms of the band's tendency to self-deprecate. Yeah. And it sounds to me like, Bob, you were just saying, I asked Jason this question, there's a new mythology about the replacements that's coming because of Bob, you wrote this book, that's uh, unbelievable, now these sets are coming out. The fact fiction thing... (laughs) With this band is very funny. It's amusing to me that they're like, ah, my amp was bro- busted. He mic the wrong speaker. And then you've discovered that's not true at all. Yeah. Bob- I mean, of course, you know, <laughs>
3: memories and, and what happens in the studio tend to thing. And that was probably the default thing. The, to, the reality is that, um, you know, given the band status at the time, you know, once they got to the mix and, and again, this was the long, the longest In a way that the band had ever spent At least in a concentrated way Making a record And they just signed with Warner Brothers And, you know, as I try to explain to people No record is ever made in a vacuum It's never just like yeah. We're going to make a great record And if we're not happy We're going to redo it It doesn't work like that So I think by the time They got through the mix And and had worked with Again, the first time They're working with an outside producer And I think Tommy really took um, You know, really The reins on this record And whereas on all the other records The band had been involved They even had their hands on the mix It was a new experience for them. So there was probably, you know, just given that fact, there was going to be some dissatisfaction about how it sounded, but they weren't really going to fight. They weren't the type of band to fuss and fight about it. There was also the reality of it as one of the first bands from the kind of American indie scene to sign to a major label. There was already going to be a lot of suspicion about, you know, a band selling out, going commercial. And so the fact that it didn't sound like, you know, it wasn't a certainly a glossed up sounding record and had its own kind of weird sound, probably in, in, in the replacements' spine. And Paul said this in the book, uh, was like, probably wasn't the worst thing to have a not, you know, overly sort of, uh, a polished sounding record. But I do think that as with a lot of things that sort of did the band a disservice, you know, they should have probably fought for a better, better sounding record or something they would have been more satisfied with. The fact is, as you mentioned, they were sort of in a transition with management at that point. And the first thing that the new manager wanted to do was remix the record, but you know, that wasn't feasible either. Yeah. So I think it just became one of those things where it's like, we we'll put the record out. And while the sales weren't great, the commercial, the critical response was unbelievable and, uh, to, to this record. And it, and it made them, you know, the hot band of 1986 and the first Rolling Stone Hot issue, we got them on SNL. So there wasn't, it wasn't that the, the mix hindered or in, you know, kind of their success or response in any way. Yeah, it didn't sell a lot of records, but that was sort of almost beside the point. The 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 replacements were about as hot as a band could get, you know, at at their level in 85, 86 off the strength of Tim. So nobody really questioned it until years later, as with Don't Tell a Soul, where it was sort of like, and and I always say the two records that the band probably had the least input on mixing were Tim and Don't Tell a Soul, which not coincidentally are the only two records we've gone back to and done a done a remix on, so...
1: Well, I think it's also fascinating that, uh, in previous sets and in previous, uh, album session stories, you hear a lot about antics, things that kind of went, uh, nuts. This set, uh, the narrative about the Tim sessions begins with the, the band purposely playing a fuck off, walk the room show at CBGB's. Right. But then the session they seem to take very seriously, I think. Like, I'm sorry. I'm guessing there, there's not those stories. No, I, of- you- That is actually true. They were,
3: I think once, you know, again, working with an outsider in terms of Tom Ramone, I think initially there was like, you know, they're figuring each other out. The replacements as a band were very insular as people, as a group. And so I think it took a little while, but, you know, they had respect for Tommy as a producer, had respect for the Ramones. And so, and, and, you know, and I think what they were hearing in the studio Uh, during the playback uh, initially before the mix was sounding really good. So I think everybody went with it. And Paul even talks in the liner notes about, you know, we actually hunkered down and thought, okay, well, let's give him something to work with. And so they were probably more disciplined on this record. And I think quite frankly, Paul knew he had a a really wonderful batch of songs and wanted to kind of, you know, (laughs) honor those in his own way. Uh, So there was that. And, you know, they previously, they'd worked with Alex Chilton. So they worked a little bit with an outsider. So it was a process in this whole thing. So I think uh, they, they were very serious in this. I think the issue, uh, in terms of kind of the dynamics internally had more to do with the fact that Bob was sort of starting his sort of uh slow protracted split from the group. And that was kind of coloring the sessions as well. And so that was maybe more of the the, the issue at hand rather than them getting sort of drunk and getting crazy. That really wasn't the case with, with this record.
1: And I know that uh, Tommy Stinson uh, talks about it in the liner notes, uh, or rather, and uh, you spoke with him about Things like Swing and Party and Here Comes a Regular, like they really mark a sea change for the band. And I can't, you know, those of us who want to read into those lyrics, like I feel like they both really capture what was going on in the band. And at the time, things were changing, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that
3: that there is, you know, as always with The Replacement, so much of who and what they were is in the songs, is in the music, is in the lyrics. Uh, And, you know, this was a a confusing and interesting time for them as people and as a band, uh, a transitional time, both, you know, within the the framework of the group, and the dynamics of the group of them, you know, leaving a major label or leaving a, you know, indie label yeah. going to a major label, them yeah. growing up as adults, you know, all that stuff. And I think that's, you know, that's sort of poured into to every sort of bit of this record and, and the songs. And I think that's Partially, why it's you know it, it was received so well at the time and has become the classic it is. You can almost, without sort of being explicit about it, you can feel that tension and that fear and that hope and that you know everything in in, in that record.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, uh, Ed. I want to talk to you about some of the choices you ended up making. I, I assume in uh, in conferring with with Bob and Jason, the the voices in particular are getting to me. The additional new voices i'm hearing paul's voice i think some backup singing comes every once in a while again i've lived with this record a long time and when you live with a record for a long time you know it and every once in a while this one's playing i'm like what the hell's going on who is that why is paul saying that it's remarkable uh because i know you've done a lot with uh again part of the story of this record is the the way tommy ramon uh mono mixed it and you've panned guitars it sounds mightier but I just want to ask you about the emphasis on the voice. You, you alluded to it earlier. What was it about the vocal tracks you were hearing that made you feel like they needed to be brought up and added to the mix, so to speak? Can you speak to that? Speaking of the backing vocals. I, th- I hear, Back- yeah, primarily yeah. and chatter and just like, just like g- almost guttural sounds and like la la las and all these sorts of things. Yeah
5: yeah there are, there are bits and pieces that if you listen to the uh, original mix closely, the, some a lot of that stuff is there, but it's buried. It's like yeah. what was that? Do I hear that? And then you know Bob and Jason you know gave me explicit notes on you know because I, I just I would come up with a mix, send it to those guys, they would dissect it for me and they're very, very helpful. and I really appreciate their efforts in, you know into getting the mix done. And they're, they say things like, "You should bring those background vocals up. Bring get that get that piano. That piano part's great. Yeah. Um, you know, we couldn't hear that on the original. So they were very helpful in, in putting everything together. You know, like I always say. You know, I just turn the knobs, and uh, I got a lot of guidance from Bob and Jason on this. Um, in, in and in addition to the dossier, <laughs> yeah. uh, these are these are all the these are all the mix notes." these are mixed these are look at look at all want me to throw them up in the air it's crazy (laughs) well you know know. Vish
3: Vish, the things you're talking about and and, and I talked about this a lot there's stuff like for example in Left of the Dial in the outro there's, there's this humming That's on the original, that's on the original mix, but you can't hear it. So some of it is, some of it is what Ed has done in terms of the architecture of the record, in terms of the separation of the guitars, in terms of the clarity that you get now, you are able to hear things more discreetly that was there, but sort of was all kind of bunched into a wall of sound and this kind of mono sounding thing. Now it's just opened up. So that's why I say, you know, in in the sense of what Ed did with this record fundamentally is so crucial that it opened up all this stuff that was, you know, 70% of it was already there. It just, you couldn't hear it. And so that's what I mean by saying, it's like, it's, it's a radical reinvention of a record. And yet at the same time, it's, it's the same record, you know, you know, for the most part, 70, 80%. Um, And, and, and that's, that's credit to the way Ed sort of heard and saw this record and his kind of genius in terms of being able to kind of, allow all the stuff that was there to, to, to bloom and to be heard, you know, essentially.
5: Yeah. I would all, I would always a B the original mix to what I was doing constantly. Yeah. You know, I line them up. I'd be listening. What's at, the, what's happening at this section. And then, you know, find, especially finding other guitar parts, like in little mascara, little mascara, um, you know, Bob Stinson, just, da, 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 which they didn't use at all. Yeah. It was just on a track all by itself. And he was just like jamming. And he's playing along with the track, and you know that, it's a great little hook. It's a cool thing. Yeah, um, that that comes to mind, especially. Um, there's there's
3: stuff I think too. You know, like for example, also in Little Mascara, the Chris Mars does this really high vaulting backing oh, yeah, part of yeah. the sort of it's second chorus. I've-
0: and and, and it's
3: just there. So that's like, you know, there's these kind of ghosts, uh, almost now that you hear or can pick out. Uh, there's a lot of stuff where Paul's obviously doubling himself. I mean, most of the vocals are, are Paul. There's some things that are Chris, but like, uh, you know, in, in I'll Buy, where Ed just found a, a bit or a part and would add it to that for, for punctuation, for emphasis. And again, it's not something that when you hear it, you immediately, uh, you know, maybe you, in your case, because you know the record so well. But it, you do feel like
1: there's something added, something plus, something extra in there that yeah, it's emotional. Yeah, like I will say, yeah. I will say, Jason, I don't know if this resonates with you as a as a fan, um, but yeah, I think it's the outro to "Left of the Dial" where Paul's humming.
4: Oh Paul's yeah, dude.
1: Yeah, and and it freezes me. Like I'm almost brought to tears by a guy. That, and then I'm like, you know, the thing with this sort of thing is as you get older, you're like, did I remember this wrong? Did I did I miss this somehow? You're saying this was there. Jason, is something wrong with me? I'm getting emotional about a guy <laughs> who's humming at the end of a song. What's wrong with well, me? Do you have that? Fine.
4: I think you're fine. Okay. I think that, you know, it's something to where really in revisiting and kind of reliving the making of Tim, you know, and the wondrous work that Ed has done, the extraordinary work that Ed has done. Thank you. It I remember whenever we got the uh the test pressings for the new mix. Like that's when it really hit home that something extraordinary was happening. Something that was larger than uh, all of us was happening. To where we, you know, some of the the mark of a the mark of a good archival project is when you can give a fan base, a new record from their favorite band. And if you can give someone a new version of their favorite album by their favorite band, then we're doing something really right. So that's kind of what I think about with this new version of Tim. It is it is like a new replacements record, but it's it's a version of Tim that you've never heard before.
1: I keep saying that to people, and I feel kind of nuts uh, saying it, but it really... Sorry, guys. I, I don't have. Th- I'm not going to have many opportunities to say this to you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, it is really That's remarkable. And to get very personal, uh, Bob, Jason, has anything in this process brought you to tears? Because I, 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 I'm curious how. Yeah, Jason's nodding his head, everyone. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's also yeah. A, a heavily medicated, so who knows what he's actually thinking. <laughs> uh, Bob, were you like – did you get emotional with this? Yeah,
3: I mean when we got to the left of the dial where sort of at the end uh, you hear it's Paul saying, you know, the kind of – pre-outros Paul says left the dial and then Alex Chilton comes in singing that part and one of the things that that I think uh Alex probably didn't do was put himself up a little bit more in the mix but it's such a beautiful moment uh so yeah every time I heard that I heard that 50 times and every time I got emotional hearing that or hearing something like um here comes a regular in the version and the interpretation Ed has has done in his mix where the piano um kind of threads through all the way through the song and builds to the the uh the solo and I just thought man it's so great and and again one of the things that t- talking about the overall picture is one of the reasons I think this version of the record is more emotional is because you're hearing Westerberg's vocals which I think some of the best singing some of the most emotive yeah. singing of his career more directly uh, while I do think reverb has its place and there's certainly reverb on this record I think the excess of it on the original uh, in a way even though it's a great stylistic trait and I think that's what Tommy was going for it's like Paul was singing so good and these songs are so direct and emotional and powerful to hear him singing a little bit more unadorned. I think that also adds this whole other layer of sort of meaning and power and resonance to those songs. Yeah. Uh, and so that's another thing just in terms of the overall concept sonically for the album is like, let's hear Paul more. Let's let's kind of strip away the effects and let the man and the voice and the power and the actual you know, kind of native emotion of this carry the carry the yeah. production as well. And so I think that's, uh you know, one of the things, again, that, that in Ed's overall sort of vision of this record has, has really come through. Yeah.
4: Well, and it's all it's also something to where in just. I'm still listening to Tim. I'm still I'm still in it. Like I'm still listening to the box and I still find things that continually take me by surprise and make me emotional. Like
5: yeah. I hit I hit a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's all it's, <laughs> all, it's, all, it's all subliminal. <laughs> it's magic. It's just, a, I'm a magician,
1: I'm a wizard. Well just bait, hiding things. Baked in some tear inducing stuff. That's what you did. You know, I did it's, uh, it's evil. Like,
4: here comes here comes a regular. That's 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 all I gotta say. Here comes a regular like still blows me away. Even to this day, yeah. it still blows me
1: away. You read Peter Jesperson's description of being in the room and cajoling. He gets some intel that uh, Paul's sitting on a song and basically puts him on the spot. Hey, buddy, you holding out on us? You got another song? And then he does it, two takes, and they're in tears, the three of them, uh, the guys in the console room or whatever. It's really emotional stuff. Uh, And I don't, like this record ranks, this is the one that got me. So I just want to say that this is a meaningful one for me and I I hope I've conveyed that enough without sounding like a blubbering moron but it is a really meaningful one. I want to quickly just to give people who are hardcore fans uh, a little bit of insight about the outtakes on this um set. Uh Nowhere is my home has circulated in a version before uh having fun is a big revelation here a song that Tommy wrote. Um is there anything Bob that you want to say? To kind of illuminate what that disc is going to do to people. Like we we're all talking about how much we we're yeah. in tears all the time listening to this thing. <laughs> what is that going to do to people? Do you think, Bob?
3: Well, I think it's, again, and and Ed was involved in mixing or remixing a lot of that stuff. I mean, I think fundamentally we had such an incredible uh, batch of material with the Chilton sessions, the the January 85 sessions that Alex Chilton produced. And again, that was done very quickly, but I think the band, and significantly it was the last time the band was really working in the studio as a four-piece with Bob, you know, fully integrated. You know, you've got this legend, another myth, (laughs) mythical character in Alex, uh, and that relationship of Alex and the replacements blooming. So, you know, there's a kind of historical sort of overlay on all that but the tracks are just fantastic they just come off a year on the road and yeah. support of let it be i mean they're kind of at a peak as a band and when you hear you know nowhere is my home and the and the couple versions of, of can't hardly wait you can really hear that and so it's for those quickly mixed things to really get a, a polish from ed in terms of the mix uh, amazing stuff and again it was recorded at the same studio nicolette but recorded in a different room so they have their own sound and a different drum sound and and, and again with bob being you know as a basically four piece live you know Know, in the studio the replacements at what might be their absolute peak so it was very important to include that on there we've got for the first time both of the uh, Tommy Ramone demos that he came, came in in April of 85 and did as a sort of test session and then we've got what I think are a really remarkable set of alternate takes you mentioned having fun which is a unique sort of it's really the only kind of Purely unreleased, uh, uh, composition. It's a t- early, probably the earliest Tommy Stinson pen song that uh, Paul ends up singing. Yeah. And if you listen to it, you know it's it sounds like a Tim track. You know, it sounds like so much of that era and so much of kind of what Westerberg was writing, even though uh, Tommy wrote it. Just that it's such a odd, unique track. And you know, uh, t- uh, uh, Tommy is uh, Stinson is playing lead guitar, and Tommy Ramone's playing rhythm on that. So it's a really interesting kind of studio experiment, obviously done in some downtime. And then the the alternate of, you know, iconic songs, Bastards of Young or I'll Buy, the different versions of things. So you mean to hear Bastards of Young without the, you know, very famous scream intro and this totally different <laughs> uh, vocal th- effect that Paul's doing where he's just sort of hut-hutting the intro. It's yeah. like, all oh, that's the kind of, you know, catnip for, for fans and for, for, for people. And I think both with the remix in the main and also with the alternate tracks is the replacement spent an entire career, as you say, kind of you know, deferring or uh, downgrading their talent or their artistry or their effort, you know, as a protective impulse. But I think what you hear on this record in this set in particular is how creative they were, how much they worked, how thoughtful they was. Yes, they were a down and dirty rock and roll band and there's a lot of stuff that's live. But, you know, listen to that, to the ending of the vocal ending of Little Mascara, all these parts. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, that was, as, as as Ed said, it was, you know, an orchestrated idea. Paul is a very creative, brilliant guy who was just coming into his own in terms of understanding using the studio with this record and I think it's something they evolved even more with Pleased to Meet Me and again on yeah. Don't Tell a Soul and what you know and Dead Man's Pop so I think again it's a, a lot of the intention the fundamental intention behind doing these projects and this project in particular is to let you really hear what a great band and creative unit and 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 artists uh, these guys were rather than just the sort of rock and roll rebels and hellraisers
1: well and I, I appreciate that And am picking up on what you're just saying about intention about the set but Jason, like these versions, again, I alluded to this earlier, these versions of Can't Hardly Wait are <laughs> utterly fast. They're utterly fascinating to me. This is a guy, Paul in particular, who is taking the song super seriously, trying it all in these different ways. And like, I'm telling you, these acoustic versions, this cello version, they get to me almost more on some level than the, 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 ver- I'm, I'm the pointing please to, to my record me? collection, the please to meet me version. Yeah. In, in a way, like they really, get to me uh, I, I don't know if you can expand upon it but do you have any insight what is it about that song
5: let that- me say that you know um, no, go for it Ed. the cello version of Can't Hardly Wait is Paul and a guitar all one take right you know that's just like you're just sitting there playing his guitar and it, the feel is so immensely incredible yeah that you know, I mean I didn't get to tears on anything. I'm not but my the hair the hair in my arm stood up a lot, let me tell you that much. Yeah, yeah. And what's left of anything on the top also stood up. <laughs> <laughs> um but that and his his timing I mentioned this to both Jason and Bob that, you know, Paul's timing is impeccable because I had to move some of that cello stuff around to make that composite yeah. of the two tracks that were there. And I took stuff from the end of the song. There's no click track, he just played it from his heart and you know with the rhythm of his heart he played that song he sang it at the same time and you know I, I flew in cello bits from the end of it into the front of the song and it was like okay that works yeah. and that's in time yeah, because of Paul's playing his intense playing in his heart yeah, this feel it's, an, it's quite incredible
1: yeah I feel like you allude to this in the essay that his rhythm guitar playing is impeccable I believe is the word that is used and uh that's, That's a nice Bob's word, probably. Bob's word. <laughs> 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 I appreciate that. I just want to revisit this with Jason for one second. This song, yeah. What does it mean in the replacements canon? I I have a sense of it, but the fact that it's to me, it really looms large on this set. It looms large on the 2008 reissue I mentioned. Can't hardly wait. I'm talking about.
4: Yeah.
1: What do you think Why is this song so significant to this record, even though it's not even on it?
4: Well, I you know Bob. <laughs> Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was it was a song that he wrote in 1984, right? Yeah, and they were performing yeah. much of that year live before they. Ever and recorded. it wasn't it the song that actually Seymour heard, where he was like, "That's a hit. It's got like, I, I, like
1: very possibly." Yeah, yeah. Like, that's I a mean, hit. it is such an immediate. Seymour was pretty drunk, so who knows what song? Yeah. as well, I recall. Well, it was actually it was
3: actually it was actually Jesperson. I think after uh, you know, I Will Dare was seen as the, yeah. the Well, that's a kind of signpost song and then Paul wrote the uh, Can't Hardly Wait very shortly after uh, they had completed recording let it be and of course you'd be like oh why didn't we put this on there and they just you know twin tone didn't have the financial wherewithal to sort of stop everything and do it but like yeah i mean anytime as soon as jesperson heard that and clearly paul knew it as well that was a it's a you know it's 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 a key crucial song for a number of reasons i think he does
1: know it that's why i i assume that's why he's working on it so much and trying to figure it out is that a fair way of looking at it jason yeah
4: i think i think yeah that's totally that's totally uh Fair, a fair assessment of it, and of of the multiple versions that are on disc three of this set. For me, it's all it's all about the air shaft version, the very first acoustic demo version. I where, remember where, downloading where the vocal, that from
2: the vocal yeah, isn't so up yet. The vocal yeah,
4: super yeah. low, and then it comes yeah. back up. I Remember downloading that from like Napster in like <laughs> nineteen ninety eight, and then like a hissy six generation cassette rip of it and <laughs> it being the most ghostly, ethereal thing that I had ever heard. Cause all I knew was the Tim version on the uh, second disc of the all for nothing, nothing for all set and the please to meet me version. Yeah. That's all I knew. Yeah. And to hear this completely out of left field, very emotional version has always sat with me. So to hear a nice, nice first gen copy on the 2008 reissue that yeah. like uh, to
1: just be honest destroyed like destroyed me that's the one i sang to my kids like that's the version at bedtime like i would sing that iteration of it like that's what i was trying to emulate anyway sorry yeah. i just wanted to uh, hit upon it there i know we've been going on here for quite a, a long time and i thank you i think we'd be remiss if we didn't cover uh something called not ready for primetime Live at the Cabaret Metro, Chicago, Illinois, January 11th, 1986. Bob, this is described as an imperfect live document of the band. Can you expand upon that and also why it was included on this? I think it's, sorry, I know why it's called Imperfect. Again, similar to uh, that version of Can't Hardly Wait. They're not quite ready when it's rolling. I know that part of it, but it's an amazing (laughs) show. Can you talk about why this was included?
3: Yeah, well, like a lot of sort of things that uh, we've we've found or included on these sets, this goes back years to when I was first researching the book. And one of the first people I interviewed, who was really key to the story, was Monty Lee Wilkes, the late Monty Lee Wilkes, who was the band's sound man from '85 to '87, and had a very illustrious career as a sound guy. I worked for Nirvana, everyone from Nirvana to Britney Spears, he was a pro and a and a big figure in Minneapolis. And when I interviewed him for the book, he delighted in presenting a briefcase full of tapes that he had made, you know, uh, intermittently during those two years he was on the road with them and one of the shows was this cabaret metro show which was significant for me for a lot of reasons because um, originally i was involved in the 2008 reissue and there was some talk of maybe including some live stuff and i knew of a guy a taper in chicago a famous guy named adam jacobs who had recorded and had a really pristine live recording of that uh, you know audience tape and i thought oh wow maybe there's some way to blend these two shows couldn't do that but we used some of Adam's audience uh, recording, so you've got the sort of atmosphere and the and the, the audience sounds, but Monty's board tape that he made that night, and again it comes a week before they played Saturday Night Live, uh, so that hence the name. And basically, they it was a one off gig from a show that they had canceled in the fall of '85, uh, playing the Metro, which was one of their favorite venues in Chicago, which was one of their favorite cities. And so it it kind of hit a lot of buttons, even though it's sort of similar in era for the from the live at Maxwell's recording, which is recorded just maybe a month later. We just thought, what an incredible opportunity to kind of get that classic, you know, the last great burst of the replacements as a live band, because by May, April or May of that of '86, they you know the things with Bob had sort of gotten to a really bad point. So that February, January, February tour is the last, you know, the last great burst of them. But unlike Maxwell's, where there was a giant mobile recording truck parked outside this little venue, this was kind of done unawares, you know, the the band was really sort of in their element, playing a great show, not on tour, crucially, because, you know, they would have been partying, drinking, Paul would have worn his voice out, this is a one-off gig, so from that respect, it's like truly like natural, you know, you're seeing like an animal in, in its natural environment. Um, but, and yet it's a tight set. It's a great set. They're doing originals. They're doing, you know, across the catalog, doing um, incredible covers. Um, so it's like, kind of like the, it's an alternate almost uh, version of Maxwell's, which was a great show and recorded with better fidelity. But I think this one recorded surreptitiously with, with but with a more kind of natural effect from the band. And, yeah. and again, there's even a cover of Bob does singing of the Crusher, this Minnesota garage yeah. rock uh, <laughs> uh, thing from the '60s. So I think you know it's it's just such a wild show and such a great so so imperfect sonically, but absolutely perfect in terms of uh, you know the creative spirit and the intention and, and the performance.
1: Yeah, absolutely, a, a nice uh, emotional. End piece, I would say, to this set exactly.
3: And uniquely, you know, if you look at the kind of chronology of this uh, this box set, it begins January of '85 with the Alex Chilton sessions and ends a year later, January of '86, uh, with this show at the Metro. And so, in between, obviously, are all the recordings and demos and the recording of Tim. So it's kind of a year in the life, both on the studio, in the studio, and on the stage of the replacements, and kind of, you know, sort of the perfect uh, bookend uh, to, to the kind of to the Tim story.
1: Well, again, I really appreciate that insight into it. I hope people will check out this set before we leave this ed i want to ask you as someone who came to this i think relatively new the freshest maybe of anyone's ears here or well except for me uh <laughs> jason and bob had obviously been um living with this uh content for quite some time i know you've covered a lot of ground here today ed was there anything in particular about this whole project that uh, gave you some great insight into this band or anything you found particularly fascinating that we haven't yet covered today?
5: Bob and Jason's obsession with the band and with this project. Dedication. more, more Not an obsession, but dedication to it and really wanting to get the best out of it and pushing me to get the best out of what I could do with it. Um, great guidance from these two guys. Um, I just want to mention that it's without them, this this would not have happened. Um, I wouldn't have been on the project and the project wouldn't have gotten off the ground as well. But they, their dedication to the band and to this project is uh, outstanding.
3: Well, and Vish, if I could say, I mean, in the same way with Ed, like I say, I, having worked with various people, very few producers, very people, few people brought into this would have worked as hard or, or sort of wanted to sort of dig into the details and and, and taken on a task as, as big as this was. And, and when I say it's sort of, there's something sort of cosmically blessed about this project one of the things we wanted to do uh, at the end of the day with the package was to kind of give it as we did with uh, the remix of, of of Don't Tell Us All kind of give it a new sort of cover a different visual representation to kind yeah. of indicate that this is a new record and a- as I searched high and low for photos of the replacements you know something that would be worthy of a you know cover image that strong and striking it was very difficult because replacements were a squirrelly bunch didn't pose for photos there's very little of them in color at that time but it turned out the one photo, the one photographer who had unused shots of them, shot them for Rolling Stone in their rehearsal space at that, at that time at the, to the Tim era turned out to be a guy named, uh, Moshi braka And it's just a beautiful, as you've seen, beautiful image. Yeah. And Moshi Braca is best known for his cover photo of the Ramones Leave Home album, oh, wow. which is the first project that Ed and Tommy Ramone worked on. So in a, in a way, the whole thing sort of kind of comes full circle, you know, sort of put a, put a bow on it with that. And so, I you know, I think from the beginning, the fact that Ed was available and willing to do this, the fact that, you know, uh, the tapes were and the sounds on tape were as good as they were and the fact that, you know, we were all able to kind of push in, in the direction that that I think and, and kind of come up with this vision for for this record that the to, to execute what the band had intended and wanted all those years ago and to kind of make it come true it's been a sort of you know like I say it's, it's just been blessed sort of in this cosmic way from the beginning uh and 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 so just I think you know hopefully it is something that the fans are gonna once they get their hands on the whole thing are really gonna embrace and enjoy and 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 feel the way that that you do and so many people who, who have heard it so far have
1: that's beautifully put uh Jason you heard Ed correct himself from using the word obsession is there any more appropriate word for the replacements and their fan base than Obsession? What do you think?
4: Well, they, they are very...
1: Obsessed? <laughs> oh, opinionated. <laughs> uh,
4: very, very opinionated. There's a lot yeah. of love for this band. Yeah, And everyone wants to make sure that everything passes the smell test, is what I will say. They want to make sure that the ethics of... You know, whatever they think the ethics of the band are or the ethics of the songs or the emotional attachment that they have to this band is not being diluted in any way. You know, I think everyone takes this band very, very seriously. Yeah. Is what I would say. Yeah. And sometimes that turns into obsession. Sometimes (laughs) that turns into delight. Uh, It You know, it can be it can manifest itself in many different ways. Fish.
1: For what for what it's worth, as someone who spent time with the original recording and and this new one, for anyone who's doubting, it's a sen- this set's essential nature. It's a whole new record. I, I can't stress it enough. It's really a beautiful thing you guys have all made uh, together. One thing I didn't it, get it, to. Oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, I was going to say, you know, and the other thing that I mar- marvel at constantly Vish, is the fact that we get to do this. You know, yeah, a yeah, lot of yeah. that <laughs> is a, a lot of that is you know we were very fortunate in that the first. Project we did, which was kind of just a a really a trial balloon with that live at Maxwell's. It sold so well. And, and the people at Rhino who had come in and and, and taken over at that point in in the company's history were fans, were willing to sort of explore the catalogs of a band like the replacements. And, you know, so that success has beget the opportunity to do more of these and more ambitious projects. But the reality is, even with the sort of, you know, relative success we've had with this, there are very few major labels that are investing the time, money, effort and care in, in the catalog of a band that's as frankly as marginally commercial as the replacements. Yes, they're beloved. Yes, they were nominated for rock and roll hall of fame yes all that stuff but the reality is you know that it's a lot easier to sell a lot of uh fleetwood mac records or eagles records than it is to you know with with much less effort than it is to do something like this so you know thanks to jason thanks to rhino thanks to mark pincus at rhino you know the people who've been behind this have been willing to sort of let us run with it and 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 i think you know the proof is in the pudding in the results but like i still just marvel that you know at this point So many years later that this stuff is finally being taken seriously and given the kind of, you know, weight creatively and and respect that that I think the replacements deserve.
4: Well, it's our it's our fourth box set, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. In like five
3: years, you know, so that that, you know, and again, and that's the fans when you talk about the fan base as as opinionated is. They can be as, as sort of, you know, fixed in their ideas. They can be, they've also really welcomed this stuff and bought it. And, and yeah, yeah. It. And so it's a, it's a kind of, there's a symbiosis there between us and the, you know, and, and the record company and the people we get involved like Ed and, and the fans. And at the end of the day, you know, that's who it's for. You know, it's for the people who really yeah. love this stuff and appreciate it and can have an even deeper appreciation of, of, of this band. So
1: I think most people are feeling really fortunate that the custodial care of this band is in your hands Bob in your hands Jason like I I, I can't imagine anyone uh, would second guess that speaking of that though was the band themselves particularly involved in this particular set
3: yeah the way that works I mean historically replacements you know unlike say someone like Elvis Costello who might listen to every outtake and write liner notes and all that stuff the replacements you know they, they didn't obsess over the mixes originally back in 1985 but right. uh, it, it's it's True to say that, like, as we've worked on this stuff, and as I've worked with the band, you know, basically going on 15, 16 years now, there's been a level of trust established. And after the success of Maxwell's, which led to Don't Tell a Soul and Dead Man's Pop, which was really kind of, frankly, Westerberg's aim in all this, he always wanted a a remix of that, and he had the total trust of Matt Wallace who was his close friend and set up his studio and he worked with him multiple times after that point you know the next few projects were basically uh, you know archival stuff and we had Peter Jesperson involved and sorry ma so we've always had you know and and, and again Darren Hill who manages Paul and um, John Kastner who manages Tommy From conception to execution, everybody's involved in every step of the way, and I know Tommy listened to this, and I know he was very deeply listening to uh, Dead Man's Pop because I had him trapped in my car for several hours when we listened (laughs) to it and, and did a and did a podcast on it, and I know Paul listens to all this stuff after the fact, maybe not, you know, whatever, uh, except for, I know he was listening to dead man's pop. So, you know, it it, it depends on the project, the varying levels uh, of things, but yeah, I mean, we get the band is as involved uh, in this as they've been in any other aspect of their career, I suppose. uh, Fair to say, but, um, but yeah, I mean again, it's 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 one of those things where Tommy has expressed to me how happy he is with, with the with the end result of of things and 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 Paul as well. It's just like they're just not the kind to mess with the minutiae and fortunately, which wasn't the case for probably the, the 20 years after they broke up, uh, they've been willing to kind of let that go let part of that go and sort of trust in trusting, you know, me and us and Jason and Rhino to be like, okay, you guys seem to be doing okay with this. Keep it going. Okay. Uh, because I think, you know, they see the response from friends and fans and critics and, 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 and the sales and all that sort of stuff. You know, Paul increasingly is more uh sort of retired and removed from this stuff. Uh, but, you know, obviously I'm in day to day contact with Darren Hill, his manager, who sort of everything goes through him. But yeah. So, so yeah, no, everybody's, everybody has, you know, again, I think, more with some of the earlier projects, but as the trust has grown, it's sort of become a thing of like, you know, they've let us go on with the business of, of getting this stuff together. Nice. But, you know, yeah. again, with a remix, yeah, no, know everybody had to weigh in before we we gave it the okay.
1: No, that's lovely to hear. One quick thing I did on uh, social media is I discovered uh, through a friend that the logo, the font for Tim <laughs> seemed pretty close to the Tim Hortons font here in Canada, the donut and coffee chain <laughs> right. and everyone. I, I had not noticed this before. I had not noticed it, but my friend was like, did you ever. So I beat them and I put it on one of the Facebook groups yeah. and people were like, oh, huh. I didn't see that mentioned in the liner notes. Do we know anything about this? Well, the original uh, design uh, was – it's, it's a, such a complicated history. You know, the
3: original cover was by Robert Longo, who was a big artist. Deborah DeStefan was kind of handling the art. She did some of the photos and did some – and then there was a third designer. So it's very possible that the kind of third designer might have had some Canadian associations. I, did, I do know in the redesign that we did or just in the, dealing with the designer that it's not a real font that exists. Yeah. It's a kind of designed font. So if anybody copped the Tim Hortons thing, you know, it could have been – you know it's close to a couple fonts so it could have been yeah. coincidence but you're right it does it does look <laughs> a bit like that and i think also the color scheme probably adds to that but uh, you know but, i'm not trying to you know, again maybe the-
1: <laughs> i'm not stirring no, up, I, I, stirring up I, I, trouble i, I just i that, thought it was
3: funny uh, very very possible i saw that after the fact and i thought oh that's interesting it could it could be but you know the replacements were notorious uh, uh design thieves from Hoot Nanny, which is basically they copped an old electro record yeah. to the cover of uh you know please to meet me which is a riff on an old Elvis record yes. so you know as Paul says we're thieves anyway so that it wouldn't surprise me if they had uh, they'd stolen your uh, your national uh, uh, logo I am there not,
1: in Canada not a champion of the Tim Hortons in any way whatsoever I just want you to know that anyway this was uh this was lovely uh if people want to learn more about uh no wait a minute you almost got off the hook there every time we end one of these I say hey guys what's next and you you say uh we don't know Jason, is there a plan in uh, afoot for further things? Well, there's a plan.
4: Yeah, of course, there's a plan. Okay. I mean, I think I'll just I'll just be upfront about it. You know, I think there's there's some things that we want to do. There's some upcoming anniversaries that we might want to celebrate. There's one record where there's a lot of outtakes where we really want to look at it and a lot of really meaningful demos. Mm. Yeah, I think. But as I but as I always admonish, you're not going to get
3: anything else unless you buy this one first. Right. That's so. right. You got
4: to We got to. <laughs> you got. I got to buy this one first. But you know, I mean, I I can't be so secretive whenever we're doing so many of these. <laughs> they have a very limited discography. I know, you know. I know. So it's kind of you know. I've already told everyone that you're not going to get a deluxe stink. Yes. Um. So okay. Now. You're just, you're you just fill in the, the
1: blanks. Do the math. Okay, oh, I got it. We, we, we we'll, Thank you for that insight. Ed, you, are you actively uh, making uh, records and stuff these days? What are you up to? Always. Yeah. Always. Nice. What
5: am I doing? Well, Rosie Flores. Um, there's an upcoming, uh, I'll be remixing Dee Dee Ramone's records. Oh, nice. Coming up. And yeah, and I'm just, you know, I've been working on this replacements record as well. You know, I've worked on it for quite a while and it was, it was enjoyable. I love doing it.
3: And, and Ed's done, Ed's done an amazing bit of work in, uh, the Dolby Atmos format, including, uh, Tim, which will be out in that. And also one of the things, one of the other reasons, again, talking about the sort of cosmic connections, one of the first big records Ed worked on, uh, was, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Midnight Train to Georgia, right. which was, has always been, uh, one of Paul Westerberg's favorite songs. So that was another connection there. And Ed's just done a 50th anniversary version of that, right?
5: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Got one to the original. I recorded that originally and mixed it. And uh, I just did a 50th anniversary uh, Dolby Atmos mix, and I did a stereo mix, which I I don't think you know. So we were talking, you know, Sony is not doesn't do what Rhino does. They just they just throw shit out there. <laughs> they don't they don't care. Um, you know, there's a lot of care at, in the Rhino camp, I must say. Uh, but it was fun to go back and revisit that 16 track. Uh, also, last year, I, you know, did some, um, worked on the partial catalog of the Talking Heads Atmos mixing,
1: which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah it was great. Ed, yeah.
3: And fingers crossed someday uh, soon, hopefully, Ed's uh, kind of remix of uh, the end of the century record will see the light
4: of day. Via Dude, Rhino. hopefully. hopefully.
5: Oh. I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what's going on with that. <laughs> we finished that, you know, worked in conjunction with Rick Rubin. We finished it like three, four years ago. Ah, and it's just being held up for some oh yeah obscure at least, reason
4: at, at least three or four years yeah. ago. I know. I, well, you know, yeah. Johnny,
5: Johnny called me before he passed away, wanted to do it, hmm. like you know two thousand wow. two or two thousand three, somewhere around there, and uh, wow. he was he had talked to Rick at that time, and then you know Johnny passed and it kind of went under covers, but then it came up again hmm. when they started doing the box sets, all the Ramones box yeah. sets, and. You know, finally got together with Rick, went to his place and started working on it. And then, you know, I finished it up here, back and forth with Rick listening, and we ha- even have it mastered. It's ready to go. Are it's, they,
1: are they possibly confused and assume it can't come out until the end of the century? Is that what they're thinking? Maybe <laughs> that might be the problem. <laughs> it could very well be. Listen, yeah, uh, Ed, yeah. well be. I, Ed, I, I, for people listening, you know, we've really focused it. Obviously, we've stayed focused, I think, mostly to talk about Tim. Ed, if you ever yeah. want to come back to my show, and we can just go through your illustrious career like i i'm telling you i told my wife you're going to be on this call i'm like Yeah, ed stacy was going to be on this call and she's like okay i'm like you don't understand the records he's made and then i explained it. She's like oh holy shit anyway ed oh. if you, i, well, I know we, you. if you ever want to come back please consider it an open thank invitation you. yeah yeah
5: i've been i'm very grateful for my my decades-long career yeah and um Happy that I'm still working. I'm still doing this, still turning the knobs. You know, <laughs> that's all I do is just turn the knobs till it sounds good. I,
3: yeah, um, he does it better than yeah, anyone, though. Well, thank, thank
5: you. And um, I really appreciate the fact that uh, Bob and Jason got me involved in this replacements record. It's now dear to my heart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, look forward to having a little a little get together on my birthday on the 27th. Oh, nice. And uh, Mm -hmm. you're having an Atmos playback, and I'm looking forward to hearing that in a different environment.
1: I heard there was some sort of – there's some Tim events coming up. Is that right, Bob?
3: There's uh, going to be a uh, event at uh, in Minneapolis at First Avenue's Depot Tavern on uh, Thursday, uh, the 21st, the uh, night before the record comes mm. out. Electric Fetus, the record uh, store out there, is involved in doing it, so you'll be able to get copies of that. Uh, and then on the 27th in Los Angeles, we're doing a uh, release event at Gold Diggers in uh, East Hollywood, where we've got myself, Ed, and Jason will be there kind of doing a little quick chat. And then there will be um, Staircase Wit is a local LA band that's really great. They're going to do a set of replacements Classics, and then Jason, uh, health willing, will be spinning from the uh, decks at at Gold Diggers. And so it'll be a night of uh, replacement celebrations, uh, you know, 21st in Minneapolis at the Depot Tavern and the 27th uh, of September at Gold Diggers in L.A.
1: Nice. Very nice. Well, I hope people can make it up to those. Uh, Jason, if people want to learn more about how to obtain uh, this box set outside of their local record stores, uh, where would you like to direct them?
4: Uh, They should go to rhino.com and check out the web store. There's a lot of bundles. Bundle up. Yeah, you s- bundle up, folks.
1: <laughs> you sent me some great stuff, uh, Jason. I can't thank you awesome. enough. I, I'm very excited to have Once, All I, right, so once people...
4: I get the actual Tim swag, I'll, I'll send you some of that too.
1: <gasps> oh, my God. I live such a fortunate life because I know Jason and Bob. Ed, it's great <laughs> knowing these two. They're so wonderful. It's so nice. Thank you so much in advance. I'm, I'm,
5: I'm grateful. I'm very <laughs> grateful for being involved with this project.
1: Yeah. Now, if we can go out on a song from this edition. I wonder if we can, first of all. And if so, uh, I don't want to give away too many uh, nice treats. But Bob, if you can think of a a song, a version of a song even to go out on, can you choose one for us? Well, I mean, you know,
3: I love, love, uh, if I was going to say one of two things, Ed's remix of Nowhere Is My Home, I think it's just unbelievable, definitive. Um, I also think, you know, one of the, the little mascara, You know, is another song that I think is kind of completely new in this form. So if you want to stick with something off the LP, I'd say Little Mascara. If you want to do something a little uh, left field, then uh, nowhere's my home. All
1: right. Well, you've made me uh, have to choose. So now Jason, who gave a (laughs) thumbs up to both, has to pick. Jason, what would you pick? You pick
4: one of them. Little Mascara. Go for Little Mascara. Okay.
1: I vote for Little Mascara. I vote for Little Mascara as well. Okay. From one of the greatest albums ever made, Tim, uh, this is a new version of a song from it uh, called Little Mascara. Jason, Bob, Ed, this was such a pleasure to have you on my show. Again, sorry for keeping us over time, but I hope you enjoyed yourselves, and I wish you the best of luck in the future.
5: Thanks for having me. Thank you, Vish.
4: Awesome, thank you. Yeah, Vish. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah, baby. <laughs>
1: There you go. I hope you enjoyed hearing that uh, version of uh, Little Mascara by The Replacements. And uh, thanks again to Bob and Jason and Ed uh, for that uh, in-depth talk. And it was fun, too. I hope I think we had some laughs. There's a lot going on. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about The Replacements. Uh, this was all for the 803rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network, uh, which is available wherever you get your podcasts, pretty much. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about or you're looking for it or if you want to learn more about me sign up for my monthly newsletter please visit vishkana.com you can also like creative control on facebook follow the show on twitter at vish creative uh, or you can follow me directly on instagram and twitter at vishkana Uh, also uh, i don't know i'm on a bunch of things i've put some of them in the link tree there's a link tree link in the show notes so if you click on that you can follow me on blue sky and i don't know mastodon and all those things if you want you don't gotta i'm just saying that's there's some options there you can also visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going six dollars american or more a month grants you access to some exclusive content uh, you get episodes earlier than everybody else and just stuff that i find in my archives that i think might be interesting for you uh stuff that precedes the show mostly or stuff that wasn't uh, meant for this show you know i don't know i just find i have lots of different stuff still so i put it up there anyway that's what you get on the patreon also if you want a t-shirt a creative control t-shirt i uh, just message me on patreon and i'll get you one uh while supplies last i just uh, mentioned this recently i shipped one off to tennessee it's in the mail and uh I'm happy to send uh, a T-shirt your way, whether you live in Tennessee or not. Again, thanks for your support on Patreon. It means a lot. Uh, Speaking of thanks, I want to thank Blackbird Music, wonderful record retailer in Alberta. They have shops in Edmonton and Calgary, but you can also order uh, things right from their website at blackbird.ca. I also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, all fine independent businesses based in Ontario, Canada, and they offer in-kind support for this show I want to thank my friend Jim Guthrie for lending me some music of his on the show you can learn more about Jim and buy his records at jimguthrie.org and finally thank you so much for listening to this uh, in-depth look at this new uh, edition of Tim, the Let It Bleed edition, I want to thank Bob, Jason and Ed for their time and uh, if you're a Replacements fan, I hope you enjoy that and if you're not a Replacements fan, I hope you're curious now, you want to check them out and set out. What great uh, dudes those three are. So thanks to them. Thanks to you. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now.